0: we've been tracing the glorious gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, throughout the Old Testament, examining clear references to not only the person of Christ, but to clear examples and types of his great redemptive work. The text before us in Proverbs chapter 8 is a beautiful and an amazing prophetic description of the second member of the Godhead. And while we could not imagine reading Isaiah 53 and come to the conclusion that the prophet was speaking of none other than the the Messiah, the Savior, we cannot read the majestic verses before us that were read in our scripture reading and conclude that they're not referring to our beautiful, majestic, eternal Savior. The words are too carefully chosen. The phrasing and the attributes are overly specific to be referring to anyone or anything else but Jesus Christ. Christ indeed is the wisdom of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. The Word was made flesh and dwelt tabernacled among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. 1 Corinthians 1.24 declares unequivocally that Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And here in Proverbs chapter 8, in verses 1 through 9, we see the victory of wisdom as it is personified. Wisdom calls for those who will hear of excellent things, right things... Wisdom speaks only truth and unveils sin and all of its grotesque abominations. In verse 8, we see all the words of wisdom are righteousness. There's nothing forward or perverse or untrue or unclean in anything that wisdom proposes. It was said of our Lord that He was light, and the light was the light of men, and it shined into utter darkness. And our sin-cursed world, and all that was in them within him, there was in no darkness at all. what a, a great contrast. In verses 10 through 11 here we see the value of wisdom. It is better than silver. It is, it is greater than gold or rubies. It is more than all the priceless things and treasures of this world." Verse 11 says, "For wisdom is better than rubies, and all the things that thou mayest be desired are not to be compared with wisdom." Brethren, our Lord is the fairest of the fair. He is the pearl of great price, in whom are hid all the treasures of of wisdom and knowledge, Colossians 2, 3 tells us. And then here in verses 12 and 13, we see the virtue of wisdom. It warns, it reproves, it corrects us and guides us and and blesses us and leads us in plain paths of righteousness and, and shows us the way in this dark world. Our Lord and Savior is the way, the truth, the life. No one, he declares, comes to the Father but by me. He is that straight way, that that narrow way, very singular in number. In fact, he's the only one. He is the door by me. If any man enter in, as he declares, he shall be saved. Now, human wisdom attempts to tackle the evils and the sins, the problems of mankind with tolerance and rationalization, and psychology, and it throws all manner of things at it, and largely is a symptom of, of excuse-making and trying to, to term, come to terms with the depraved human nature. But wisdom goes at the heart, at the root of the problem, and shows us it, and all of its ugliness. And, and the only answer, human wisdom tries to address the symptoms of evil, and never the nature it's, it trims the limbs of, or the growth of the poison ivy without ever getting to the root of the poison ivy and rooting it out. It only deals with the outward of, of roots, and the, but with never the nature, the origin of sin. It doesn't deal with the lust behind immorality or adultery, nor the hate behind murder. And those things come from the heart, a depraved heart, a sinful heart. Judges don't sentence criminals for their evil desires, yet the heart is where the root of sinful behavior lies. That's where it all begins. Wisdom deals only with truth, never lies, never in supposition, never in theory, never in philosophy. It points us to the fear of the Lord. A love and reverence for Christ and a, and a love for what Christ loves and a hatred for what he hates. hates. And uh, for here, he lists some of those things pride and arrogance, the evil way. That way is the bent, the heart, the proclivity, the inclination. And the forward mouth do I hate, he tells us there in verse 13. And Christ is the wisdom of God in revealing to us the truth about ourselves and all of its ugliness. The sinner must be shown who they are and why they are what they are. We're sinner. We sin because we're sinners. Our sins do not make us sinners. We sin because we are sinners. That's the heart of the matter. Only divine wisdom can define sin. What it is. and Where it lies. Where it comes from. And then give us the remedy for it. The cure of what can be done about it. This comes from the word of wisdom. For the word of God is quick, it's alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit, it can do surgery on the soul which no one can see. Yet God's word has the power to dissect the soul and to determine the intents of the joints and the marrow, of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. The inner man, Hebrews 4 tells us. And so we have before us here in Proverbs 8, a portrait of Christ. The second member of the Godhead, our Lord and Savior. And here he is personified, as the poetic books often do, as wisdom. In a very graphic, descriptive language. Remember, he declared, our Lord declared, I and my Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. All you need to know about the unseen Father, who must be worshipped, he's spirit and must be worshipped in spirit and truth, is seen in the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, brethren, study the gospels. Look full there in the gospels, for there you will see God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We will see what the unseeable looks like and is. If you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father in John fourteen ninety. Here in our text in Proverbs eight. We have a beautiful description of Christ as the wisdom of God. Look in verse 14. Counsel is mine and sound wisdom. I am understanding. I have strength. By me, kings reign and princes decree justice. By me, princes rule and nobles and even all the judges of the earth. I love them that love me and those that seek me early shall find me. May I just pause and say here, for someone outside of Christ, verse 17 is yours today. There's a warning at the end of the message, but let me point you to verse 17. What a promise from the Savior. If you seek Him, you will find Him. He will be found of you. Oh, turn to Him right now. In repentant faith, seek the Lord while He may be found. He will be found for those who seek Him. I love them that love me, and those that seek me shall find me. He is the counsel of God. Isaiah said he would be called what? Wonderful counselor. I am understanding, I have strength. I am is an Old Testament declaration, a title of God given that God gave to Moses when he said, "Who am I going to tell them who you are?" And Jehovah said, "Tell them that I am that I am sent you." And Jesus unapologetically seized on that title and gave it to himself in the gospels. I am the good shepherd. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. He had the boldness, the audacity, if you will, to take an Old Testament name for God and said, that's me, I am he. Declaring himself to be deity, to be God, one with the Father. Of course, he speaks with wisdom that could not come from learning and study. Remember, one of the things they said about him, never a man spake like this man. How can he know what he knows seeing where he came from. His his father was a carpenter. They mistakenly attributed to jo- Joseph being his father. We know his brothers and his sisters. They live with us even now. The, no one could do or say what this man does. The wisdom of God. This whole passage is one of great mystery and majesty. As the various members of the Godhead are introduced... In such a way that we cannot always be sure which one is which. And no wonder they're co-equal, co-eternal. They're they're uncreated without beginning and end, self-existent before all things. And while Colossians 2 verse 3 declares that in Christ are hid all the treasures and the wisdom and the knowledge and the fullness of the Godhead bodily, everything that you want to see about God can be seen in the, the bodily appearance and the life and the words and the power and the miracles and the redemptive work He did at Calvary. Everything about God you need to know you can see in God the Son. In Him is hid all the, the fullness of the Godhead bodily or in human form. And the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 1 verse 17 calls Him the Spirit of Wisdom. It is no wonder that the voices we hear in this chapter before us come from each member of the Godhead. While God the Son is always put forth first and foremost, the Savior, He's the God that we can touch. He's the part of the Godhead that we know and can see. He came, He took on flesh and became one of us. And so He's always, the Spirit always draws us to the Savior and exalts the Savior and points us to Him. He does not speak of Himself, and although when the Spirit is speaking here, we know it's the voice of God, it always points back to God the Son. Christ is the express image of the Father, Hebrews 1.3 tells us, that being the brightness of His glory and upholding all things by the word of His power and being made higher than the angels with a more excellent name than they. And the Father speaking to the Son, saying, Thy throne, O God. Listen, God the Father speaks to God the Son and says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of Thy kingdom. And You, you Lord, in the beginning have laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens and the works of Your hands. They uh, uh, shall all perish, but Thou remainest, Hebrews 1.11 tells us. Now to be sure, the verses before us here in Proverbs chapter 8 take us back, back, back. Not just to the beginning of creation, not to Genesis 1 verse 1, but back to the works before the works of old, to a time before time when there was no time, when nothing existed but the eternal glory and the perfections of the Godhead. John Phillips, in his inimitable style, says this, but we have trouble comprehending an eternity past and one who had no beginning. Standing at the beginning of time, we behold the vast ocean of eternity, and we suddenly realize that time and space are finite concepts. Beyond time and space are eternity and the infinite. On one occasion, he writes, David Livingstone, the famous missionary explorer, took some natives with him on a journey from the heart of Africa to the coast." They had never seen the ocean, and when they first glimpsed the vast sea, stretching to the distant horizon where sea and sky merged, they were astonished. We marched with our white father, they said, believing what our ancestors had always told us, that the world has no end. But all at once the world said to us, I am finished, there is no more of me. That is what the astronomers find when they probe back into the past. All of a sudden the comfortable space, time, matter, universe says, I am finished, there is no more of me. Then God steps forward and says, but here I am. Our own little span of time is going to run out. Someday it will say, I am finished, there is no more of me. And God will say, but here I am. It was God there before time began, and He will be there when time runs out, and so will eternity. And that ought to be the most, he writes, the most disconcerting thought of all to the secular humanist, the materialist, to the atheist, in that vastness beyond time dwells wisdom. Wisdom comes to us as we scurry along our little trails in this time and says, Prepare to meet thy God. Wisdom warns us. To prepare for eternity where time will cease, but our souls will not. Wisdom Christ leads in the way of righteousness, right paths. I am the way, he says, the correct way. We're on our own way, the broad way that leads to destruction. We're headed to destruction. All of humanity is on that broad way, clawing themselves to the great abyss. And preachers and parents and soul winners stand and say, you're going the wrong way. And what is the response of sinful man? Get out of my way. Who are you to talk to me? You don't know me. You don't know what's going. I have a right to do what I want. And they claw themselves toward eternity. But Christ is the way. We must be snatched from that broad way. Turned around in repentant faith. And put on that, that narrow path. The path of Christ, the straight gate. He is the great shepherd and he leads us, his sheep, in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Righteousness begins at Calvary. The sinner being made right with God through Christ's atoning work. We are by nature on the wrong path. You don't have to do anything to get on it. You're already on it. We're ignorant of it. We like it, we're proud of it, we point to our baubles and our things and our accomplishments on this way to destruction. Happily along the way, we must be led to wisdom, to the right path. Christ leads us away from our own self-righteousness, which is no righteousness at all, is it? If you could see it, what you pile up there and are proud of, as God sees it, it is filthy, wretched rags, putrid rags. That's the best Cain can come up with. This Cain pats himself on the back, it is beautiful offering. He looks over at the grotesque bloodiness saturating his brother from head to toe with the animal's throat slit, and blood everywhere. And Jehovah says, "I'm not accepting that." But I will accept this by faith, which pictures the work of my Son. We must exchange our unrighteousness for His and put on His own perfect righteousness, put to our account. His righteousness answers to the perfect law of God, which we've offended. May I remind you, to offend in one point is defended at all. We're all guilty and condemned. This righteousness cannot be earned. It cannot be gotten by anything we can do or join or say or be. It must be given to us as a gracious gift. His spirit breaks down our rebellion, does it? doesn't it? You remember that, don't you, in your conversion? You who are saved. That process where you had to be brought to the realization that you are nothing and can do nothing and that there's no hope outside of Christ. Our wheels had to be broken. They're very strong the human will. It is one of the strongest things known to man, the will of man. But it must be broken and remade. It must be caused to submit to wisdom, to the Word of God, to the Word made flesh. We see that in verse 21, I cause those that love me to inherit substance, and I will fill their treasures. All of you who know the Lord this morning will tell me that and agree that true tre- treasures are spiritual ones, aren't they? They cannot be bought. They cannot be gotten at the store. They cannot be ordered on Amazon and delivered at your door. True treasures cannot be bought at an auction or at the jewelry store. Real treasure are things that money could never buy, could not. There's the the price tag. Have you ever been in a store where there's no price tags? You better walk out. You cannot. You should not be there. If they don't put the price on it. Or if you see price available upon request, keep turning. Go, go on. You're in the, you're, you're, you don't need to be there. If they can't tell you what it is up front, you need to go somewhere else. And these things cannot be bought. Salvation. Sanctification. Peace. Can you go out and buy peace? How's that working for you? Have you found it? Have you bought it? Joy, unspeakable, full of glory. The keeping of the Lord... The assurance of salvation, the guidance of God day by day. We we sang about it. He is mine and I'm His forever. Oh, this lasting love and peace and joy. Oh, to lie forever here in this place. Our treasures are right relationships to God. Communion with Him, eternal joys that cannot be removed. Ours are those things laid up for us, put up, they're kept, they're guarded They're treasures that thieves can't find out where they are. And moths can't eat them up. And rust can't get to them. They're laid up for us, kept, guarded by God himself. And he gives us what we need in this life. As it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither hath entered the heart of man the things that God has prepared for them that love him. Oh, what treasures, what, what riches are ours. Oh, think about it. The psalmist says, He daily loads us with benefits. Think of the benefits we're enjoying here this Lord's Day morning. God has revealed them to us by His Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. Paul says, Henceforth is laid up, that same phrase, laid up for me a crown of righteousness. He was so sure of it because God had promised it to him. It's laid up, it's kept, it's reserved. The righteous judge shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them that love his appearing. Now, verse 22 tells us that Christ is the eternal Son of God. Look there for me. Who else could this be talking about? The Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way, before his works of old. I was set up from everlasting, from the beginning, ever. Or ever the earth was when there were no depths. There were no, I was brought forth. There were no fountains abounding with the water. Before the mountains were settled, before the hills were brought, I was brought forth. What does this mean? We see there in verse 22 He possessed me, not created me. Christ is uncreated. He is not a created being. He is uncreated and eternal as the Father is and as the Spirit is. There is erroneous teaching that Christ became the Son of God in His incarnation, but brethren, I will tell you, He is the eternal Son of God from eternity past, co-equal, ever-living, unequaled by anyone. He is co-equal with the Father and with the the, the Spirit. All the cults will deviate on this, and you must be very careful of any teaching that deviates on the doctrine of the eternal the eternal uh, eternality of the Son of God. He is the living Word, the eternal God, Son. He was never created. Wisdom, love, power, and holiness are all His divine attributes. All creation is the stage on which God displays His attribute of wisdom. See it. Look under the microscope. Look into the starry sky. You see the wisdom, the perfections of God. Analyze the human body. Look at a sail. His divine wisdom in all of its majesty is exhibited in the universe. Before time began, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit planned creation and redemption. In the wisdom of God, creation was to be the stage on which God would display His power. Oh, what power God has that can speak and worlds come into being. And stars stay in their places. And planets twirl at His word and stay where they're supposed to. And the ocean can only go so far. And it keeps its boundaries. The laws of the universe which He spoke into existence, which can never be broken until He tells them to stop being laws. Redemption was the grandest display of the power of God. Wisdom is Christ and Christ is wisdom in the flesh. How can we be cleared of blame and not impugn any of the attributes of God? How can He be both just and the justifier? Only God could do that. What does man do? Man creates another religion and tells us we can get justified and cleared and and right with God by doing or being and joining something. But only God can never violate any of His attributes and clear the sinner from blame at the same time. How can that be? How can He who is perfect he cannot look upon sin and tolerate sin ever declare any of us righteous? Oh, we have to look to the wisdom of God. The perfect Son of God. In His infinite worth, who in those hours when He hung on the cross, took place in that period of time what would take eternity of all of us dying eternally and suffering in hell, Christ the Son of God paid it in full and cried out, It is finished. Oh, the wisdom of God. Oh, the depth of the wisdom of God, of the the riches of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. Verse 23, I was set up from everlasting, from the beginning or ever the earth was. This phrase designs the ordination of Christ in his office as mediator. And in some mysterious way that I cannot begin to describe to you, the the counsel of God, the predeterminate counsel and foreknowledge of God that Peter cried out on the day of Pentecost. He said, you have taken the darling of heaven, the Son of God, who in the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God was set up to be the Savior. Oh, what deep things here. Long before the worlds were spoken into existence, there was the wisdom of the triune Godhead in their various offices in an undisturbed harmony and glory and majesty in perfect subjection to one another, co-equal Christ at some point, and we know not when and how, before time was installed as the mediator between God and man. The Savior He was in existence before creation and anointed to the office as the mediating Savior. Verse 24, where there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. Who could that be? Who could say such things if it were not God? Christ is the firstborn of every creature, brought forth before any creature was made, whether angelic or human, before the depths of the sea were, were plotted and because they were made by Him, the Creator. When there was no sea, there was the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. In verse 25, Before the mountains were settled, before the hills was I brought forth, the Son of God ordained, anointed, As Savior, Redeemer. While as yet, verse 26, He had not made the earth, nor the fields, nor the highest part of the dust of the world. When He prepared the heavens, I was there. Who could say that? I saw it. When He set a compass upon the face of the deep, telling the oceans how deep they could be and how far they could go. When He established the clouds above and strengthened the fountains of the deep. When He gave to the sea His decree that the water should not pass His commandment when He anointed the foundations of the earth. Then I was by Him, as one brought up with Him. God the Son is as old as God the Father, as one always with Him. And I was daily His delight, rejoicing always before Him. Brothers and sisters, please do not think that as some ludicrously propose that God was lonely and so He decided to create us. We've added nothing to God's glory, have we? And we see people presenting salvation in the claims of the gospel as if we're so darling, so precious. And I understand that the love of God and His affection set on us worthless sinners, but we have to say, ask, why? If you could look into my heart today, the wretchedness, the depth of depravity, if we could see each other as we know we are we wouldn't sit by each other in this room oh the wretchedness of our sin we have added nothing to god's glory except his display of loving sinners and bringing them to himself in a miraculous way that only he can get the praise and the honor and the glory for it he was by the father when the our names are written in the lamb's book of life he was with him in the planning the ordaining of the universe and all the planets and the laws of, of, of science. Christ was a co-worker with God the Father and the Spirit in making the heavens and the earth and the sea. Genesis 1.26, And God, Elohim, said, Let us make man in our image. Who is us? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form or void, and the darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. But what does Jesus say in verse 30? Wisdom personified, Then I was by him as one brought up with him. I was daily his delight. What did he say when John baptized him? This is my beloved Son in whom I am delighted in, whom I am well pleased The delight originating in what they had in common. Their relationship as father and son. Their likeness. Christ was, as we've seen, the express image of the Father. Of the same nature, of the same mind, the same sinlessness, and the same perfections. He delighted in Him throughout the days of creation. As co-workers, they looked forward to the grandest display of all at Calvary. And at the cross, the redemption of man to eternity in perfection, in harmony with his bride, and the saint of all the ages, there they look to that day. There is a mutual pleasure and delight which the Father and the Son have in each other that we cannot comprehend. The illusion is of the picture there of children playing in the presence of their parents. What a picture of love and delight! And enjoyment. In verse 31, rejoicing in the habitable part of the earth. At the, at the, they rejoiced at the future inhabitants they were going to place on earth. This grand scheme, this grand plan of creation, that man would be created in their image, and where they would live, and how they would thrive, the conditions necessary for mankind to live and exist. All this planning and creating was with the great wisdom of the Godhead. And I want you to know, brethren, that they look forward to a time when what was shown to John in the great revelation will be restored. All that the first Adam lost will be regained. And John saw it. In jubilant excitement, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. So that my people will encourage themselves until this comes to pass. For these words are true and faithful. He says he delights in the sons of men, the sons of Adam. That's us, not angels. Sometimes the angels are referred to as the sons of men, but here in this context, he's delighting in his creation, man, those who've been given to the Son by the Father as his children. Early on, the Son fixed His gaze upon those He would redeem to the time when He would take on a body of flesh and suffer and die in their place and working out their salvation for them. He would then ascend back to heaven and to regain all that He be rejoined with the Father, preparing. Isn't it amazing that Christ has said He's gone to prepare a place for us? Wow, what is He doing? What is He preparing for us? We can only imagine that great revelation of what he's doing for us on our behalf, and then he's promised, the most glorious promise to the church of Christ, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you will be also. Now verse 32 says, now hearken, listen to what I say. This has the authority of the judge on the bench about to give his verdict. And if your life was hanging in the balance, you would hearken and listen to the righteous judge. Pay attention, he's saying. Hear me. You need to know what I'm about to say. And child of God, this is into the center. This is the gospel call. You're commanded to hear The call of God, listen to His wisdom, hear the plan of God, learn the way of salvation. What a privilege it is to hear, to know the gospel. Oh, think about it. Many of you have heard it from a child. You've heard the claims of Christ, the gospel. Oh, what a joy, what a privilege. Oh, but it will be a two-edged sword for those who rejected it, who've heard it. The gospel of Jesus Christ on that great day. Have you received it? Have you believed on this one who is all wisdom? Verse 34 says, Watching daily at the gates. The gates of wisdom's house. The word of God. The, the church of Christ. And all the places where the gospel is heralded. Announced as by the ambassadors of the king of, of kings and the lord of lords. As I'm attempting to do this morning in this pitiful way. The church is the palace of the great king. Where he shows His treasures. Glorious things of thee are, the, the are spoken, Zion, city of our God. Oh, the glorious things, the treasures of God unfolded in the church of Christ. He says they're watching. They were watching as opposed to sleeping. We're warned about sluggishness. Oh, the church, it seems to me, is asleep today. The Titanic is sinking and people are wondering where they're going to, what they're going to wear to dinner tonight. And where their names are, and the band is playing a beautiful sound, and they're rearranging the deck chairs all the while. They, they do not see that this sinking underneath them. We give ourselves to lesser things, about as silly as rearranging the flower arrangements in first class on the Titanic the night of its sinking. How silly! How foolish! To what ends? For what purpose? Watch. Oh, the sluggishness. Satan loves sluggishness. And he mesmerizes even the saints of God, if he can, with this passing world and all of its silly trinkets and worthless things, status and fame and position, philosophy. I want you to look in verse 36 as we close this morning. For whoso findeth me findeth life. Who could this be speaking of? Is this a philosophy? Is it an idea? No, it's the Savior. Whoso findeth me findeth life, eternal life, and shall obtain favor of the Lord. But look at the other side of that great warning there. But he that sinneth against me wrongeth his own soul. And all they that hate me Love, death. Judas was such a man. And judging by his character, we conclude that this man, the only Judean among the Lord's twelve apostles, and again, this is John Phillips writing this, he followed Jesus because he expected to derive an earthly advantage from the establishment of the Messianic kingdom. What's in it for me? Where am I going to sit? It does not seem that he loved the Lord at first and then turned against Him later. John bluntly labeled Jesus a thief. Again and again, Jesus warned Judas that he knew what he was up to. Soured by the Lord's refusal to accept the crown of the Galileans that they would have pressed upon him if he had let them. And conscious that the Jewish establishment was plotting Christ's death. Judas sold Jesus for the price of a female slave. Thus Judas wronged his own soul, stubbornly resisting every effort, everything he was exposed to, and ended up a ghastly suicide. Whoso findeth me, findeth life, eternal life, find salvation. But he that sinneth against me, it is an unforgivable sin to sin against Christ and refusing to receive him as Lord and Savior. The command of the gospel is to repent and believe the gospel. It is more of a command than an invitation, although we invite you, humanly speaking, to believe on Jesus Christ. He deserves for every knee to bow and every tongue to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And they will one day. Some, however, only be to be ushered into eternal, everlasting darkness and eternal hell. Whoso findeth me findeth life and shall obtain favor of the Lord. Oh, the favor of the Lord is salvation. To be His child, to be one of His. Oh, what favor! What would it matter if a man could gain the whole world but lose his own soul? But to find the favor of the Lord and that favor is given to us through the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And is offered to you. He's gone for a while to prepare a place for us as we've mentioned. But He's coming again. What a promise. I will come again and receive you. But He will only receive those who have received Him, to as many as received Him. To them gave He the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believed on His name. Oh, would you come to Him just now? Where you are, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to bring anything. There's some who believe the Satan's lies. Pastor, I'm going to get this straightened out. I'm going to get my life together. And again, I ask, how's that working for you? Have you got it together yet? Oh, you're sinning against... The Savior, who with nail-pierced hands is reaching, saying, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Would you take yourself to Jesus Christ just now and rest in Him? He will give you rest to your soul. Rest that only He can give. Gracious Lord, we come in that name that's above every name, Christ our Savior. You warned about those who would build their house upon the sinking sand and fail to build it upon the sure foundation of Jesus Christ. Lord, you're the foundation, the head and the cornerstone. And we praise you for all that you are. We praise you that you're the wisdom of God from eternity past. And that your portrait is painted on every page of the scripture. As we search you, Lord, throughout the Old Testament, the glorious gospel of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you bless your word today and bring many sons to glory by it, we ask in his precious and matchless name. Amen.